so fun to be back. I'm glad you all are here and you joining us online. Glad you're here too. So we're going to start off today with just a little note. It is really, really great to be in person. I know that for some people being in person is really not physically or geographically possible, but if you are watching online and you can make it down here some days, we hope you will. For those of you who are here in person, I hope that you will introduce yourself to someone you may not know. This is an opportunity not just to learn some stuff, but to actually get to know other people here in the St. Michael community. And I'm looking out here and I know there are a number of you who attend regularly who are not part of the St. Michael church. Like you're not worshiping with us on Sunday. We're totally fine. We are very glad you're here, but we want you to feel even more welcome. And so as we finish up today's study, and I'll try to think to remind you again, I do want you to kind of stick for a minute. You have, I mean, you don't really have to get anywhere. And so stay and say hi to someone. Um, if you're actually sitting in the pew with a person who is a stranger, you know, smile. Oh, I mean, it's so nice. Um, and so it will make the whole day better. We've got a few friends in the audience, some staff members. I want to make sure that those of you in person know. So I see in the back, Bub, will you raise your hand? So Bub Masi. She's my assistant, and she's the one who sends emails to all of you. I know she's not too tall, but she is standing. Um, so, I know. So, Bub sends notes to make sure that everyone's on the same page. We know what chapters we're reading each week. If you are not receiving emails from Bub, then please do sign up on one of the doors. We've got a couple sign-up sheets. So, before you leave today, sign up. And if you're online, if you want to just share your information either in the chat or visit stmichael.org slash rbs. You can send Bub an email, get on our email list. And just in case we have any weird tweaks to the schedule or we're moving around the chapters, we'll make sure you all know that in writing ahead of our studies. And then we've got lots of good staff friends in the back who are greeting and saying hello. I want to point out Rob Springer, who is standing in the back in the center aisle. Rob is now our new director of engagement. That means that he is coordinating our welcome team here at St. Michael. He's trying to connect people who are either new or new-ish, or maybe people who have not been connected for a long time and wish to be better. And so if that kind of sounds like you, then Rob would love to talk to you today. And if you have a friend in your life, a neighbor, a coworker, someone who you think would enjoy this, then bring them. And when you bring them, I'd love to meet them. And Rob is a great person to introduce them to because he can really help connect anyone to our community here at St. Michael. And so I hope you will say hi to him on your way out as well. And we have a fun brunch this Saturday at 930 in the parlor if you'd like to join us. Rob is pitching the welcome team, so you can... He's already recruited 90, 90 people to be part of the welcome team, and so I hope if you're interested, if you're a happy, smiley, energetic person, and you want to stand at a doorway on a Sunday morning and just make people feel welcome, Rob's your guy. And for all the other introverts in here, um, it's okay, don't worry about it. Um, we'll... We'll fix you up and put you somewhere that you will be happy. Um, just a few housekeeping things. Our podcast for RBS, come on in, no worries. Our podcast, all these people who are sitting on the aisle but they have space on the inside will smile at you and let you sit in the pew. So come on down. 
If you would like to go back and listen to some of the lessons that we have done in the past, this is the sixth year of this Bible study, which is really amazing. Um, and so we have been doing this for a while. There are a few hundred episodes. So if you've got insomnia or something like that, we've got tons and tons of things for you to listen to. Hours and hours and hours, literally hundreds of hours of Bible study for this that goes all the way back to 2017. They are now actually all available wherever you listen to your podcasts. We figured out that Apple was doing a little weird thing about limiting to 100 episodes. And we've... We think we have fixed that. And so if you want to go and access any of those old lessons, you can. Or as we go through this year, if you miss a lesson, then you can listen on your podcast. And people have told me miraculously that they will often re-listen when they're like out for a walk or something like that. And so please do take advantage. We put them out on every podcast app. And so you can do all of that. We have commentaries that we will use this year. The commentary that we are going to use primarily is Samuel 1 and 2 written by John Golden Gay. These are available anywhere you want to buy a book, but also in our bookshop here at St. Michael. And so you can run now after this study to pick it up, um, but you can buy it anywhere you buy books. And if you've got a good local bookshop you want to support, I'm certain they can get it for you as well. And then before you leave today, grab one of our bookmarks because these bookmarks give the entire, well, that's not true, the first half of our study schedule on the front and the back. And it notes when we are not meeting, like for example, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving day, we will not meet. And so you can be confident when we are and are not meeting. You can also be confident of what we will be studying each particular day. This is available digitally on our website, stmichael.org slash RBS. And Bub will send it out over email. She already has, and she will likely continue to attach it. So in case you want to get something digitally, you can. But these are great to put in your Bibles. Speaking of Bibles, did you bring one? Yes, good. Stick it in your Bible. If you don't have one today, then I'll judge you only a little and encourage you to bring it in the future because we're going to be reading a lot. Today, we are doing a huge amount of stuff to try and set us up to get into First and Second Samuel. And so without further ado, we're going to start with a prayer and jump right in. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for bringing us together for a new year. And we ask that you open our hearts and minds, make space inside us, that your spirit can fill us up and strengthen us that you can, we, you can put a new word on our hearts. You can help us to understand what you have been doing throughout time so that we can continue to listen to the new things that you are doing for us right here and right now to help extend your kingdom here on earth. Be with our friends who cannot be with us physically today. Be with all those who need your healing touch, those we hold in the silence of our hearts, and those we love but see no longer. All this we offer up to you in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, here we go. What I want to start with, as is our tradition, is to talk about the Bible in general. And for those of you who have been doing this with me for a few years, you know this is not an unusual way to start. I'm not going to spend too long on this, but I do want to kind of hit a few notes for those who may be joining us for the first time this year. So to start... The Bible is really a library. We often see the Bible as being a single book, and then it can get confusing. Because if you were to try and read this single book from start to finish, you will kind of be cooking along for a few books, 
And then you're going to hit a wall and think, what in the world just happened? And then there will be many, many more walls along the way. Think of this as a library of books. And so each book, in a sense, stands alone, connected in meaningful ways to the other books. But it's really not meant for you to read front to back as if it were chronological, which it's not, or as if it's all the same style of literature, which it is not. And so it's important for us to begin to understand it that way. We happen to have done last year a series of books that will kind of chronologically connect to both Joshua and Judges, what we're going to do today in summary, and then go into First and Second Samuel because we are still in a historic period of time in the Old Testament, which brings me to some terminology. I will typically refer to what we do in here as studying a book of the Old Testament. That is not meant to be disrespectful to Hebrew scriptures. There are many people, especially scholars, who will refer to the Hebrew Bible. That's not a problem at all. But what I want to say, and what we said before, is that the Hebrew Bible is different than the Old Testament, specifically in the order of the books. It can actually be different in the total books that it includes. But very specifically, the Hebrew Bible is meant to be one collected group of works. For us as Christians, those books were reordered into what we call the Old Testament because we have a New Testament. And so the Old Testament is really meant to point to the New Testament. And so what we've done in the past is we've touched on the way in which this differs. I'm going to bring out my chart and I'm going to try and make this so that you can see it on screen. The Hebrew Bible is called the Tanakh. And the Tanakh is divided into three sections. You've got the Torah, T, the Nevi'im, N, and the K, Ketuvim. The Torah, the Ketuvim, and the Nevi'im are the teachings, the writings, and the prophets. What is interesting for us is that we reorder this. We actually end the Old Testament with the prophets that then point to the promise that we believe God made through Jesus. Tanakh is a good word for you to know. That's a nice little Bible study word. And if you have ever wondering what is the Torah or whatever, the Torah is those first five books, and then we pivot. So we have essentially finished over the last couple years between Genesis a few years ago and then last year focusing specifically on Moses, we've essentially done the Torah. Now we move on beyond the Torah and into a period of what might be considered history. I'm trying to be super quick because there are so many other things you want to do. Yes. Any questions so far about that? Remember, I do like questions. And if you've got a question, someone else has the same question. So be bold and ask. Any questions so far about how this is structured? Now we're going to talk about essentially how we get to Joshua. And so we begin in Genesis with creation. We've got that section of mythology. And we've talked before that mythology is not a dirty word. Essentially, what we mean by that is this is non-historic. There are true stories that are also not historic. And that just simply means we gain a huge amount of truth about who God is, who we are in relationship to God, what we are called to be in the world. But we don't necessarily have to wrestle with or try to figure out the historicity of those particular stories. So, for example, where is Eden? 
where did the ark crash? Where, you know, that sort of stuff. Don't worry about that. Um, we are Episcopalians, Anglican Christians. We don't have to really mess with that. And if you really want to debate that with your friends, knock yourself out. But I don't really mess with a lot of time on those sorts of things. We've got that section with fantastic true stories. And then we pivot into what we call the patriarchs. And that essentially begins with Abraham. We get Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. And then Joseph clean, clears out, ends Genesis, because through Joseph, all of the Israelites end up in Egypt. So when we start Exodus, the Israelites have been in Egypt and they are in captivity. Moses comes and shows up and he saves them by arguing with Pharaoh and doing all of the 10 plagues and whatnot, takes them out of Egypt and they receive at Sinai the 10 commandments. At that point, when the Hebrew people, the Israelites, essentially begin to become Jewish. That's when that idea of Judaism really takes root. Ten Commandments and then the development of the law and everything that will ultimately come to fruition in the exile. Once Moses leaves Sinai, you may remember this from last year, they get to the promised land, the land God said to Abraham hundreds of years earlier that the Israelites would inherit. And rather than going in confidently to the promised land, believing that God would be with them all the way, they get scared because the people are big and they're scary and they're out in the wilderness. And so they say to Moses, nope, we're not going. God gets mad and says, you've got to go back out into the wilderness and walk around until the entire adult generation that did not trust in me dies. So the 40 years of the wilderness is actually a punishment of sorts because the adults were not faithful to what God had told them to do. So all of that generation dies, including Moses himself, in the wilderness. Moses does not enter the promised land. And that's essentially where we ended last year's study. Joshua and Caleb go into the promised land. And that's what we're going to do, deal with today to go through Joshua and Judges to set us up to study David. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment in that sort of storyline in order to make a big connection arc about what we are doing this year with last year and next year. We're doing a three-year cycle. The first year, we focused on the person of Moses. This is year two. And we're really going to be focusing on the person of David. We're going to be doing other things because I want you to walk out of this year knowing enough about Saul and Solomon and all the other players. But really, we're just going to be focusing on who David was and the way in which David has loomed large in the history of both Judaism and Christianity because Moses, David, and then other players really impact the way early Christians, those early Jews, understood who Jesus was. So next year, when we look at the Gospel of John, we're going to be able to go much deeper in the understanding of Jesus as prophet, priest, and king because we have already spent time focusing on both Moses and David. And so this year, David's going to be the big, big focus. But we're going to do a few other things just so we can place David in history. Hmm. How's that to tee up Joshua? Questions or clarity? I have 13 pages of single space notes today, so I'm going to try and press on. Um, but any questions so far right now? <laughs> 
Yes, ma'am. Is historicity a real word? I only use real words, Kristen. <laughs> I, oh, I might give you another one in just a moment. That might be new to you, too. Um, yes, historicity. That's one of those words that people think, man, you're smart. Um, okay. Any other questions? <laughs> when I make up a word, I'll tell you. Okay. All right. So, apropos to historicity... What we are going to do now is talk about the Deuteronomical history of the New Testament. Ah, ha, ha, yes. Deuteronomistic history. Here we go. So Deuteronomy, right, as a... Deuteronomy is both a book, but it's also a particular way of looking at the Israelite people. And essentially, when we say Deuteronomistic... Let's all say Deuteronomistic, right? Yes. Um, that is my one of my favorite words. It is nothing like pseudepigraphal because that is my real favorite biblical word. Um, we'll talk about that another day. But when we talk about the Deuteronomistic history, we're really talking about a priestly remembrance of the history of the Israelite people. And by priestly remembrance, what I want to make sure we understand is what we talked about a hundred times before which is the Bible we have inherited, what we hold in our hands when we do a Bible study or when we read in church and all the other stuff, that is a book primarily produced, the Old Testament. The bulk of the Old Testament was written or finished during the Babylonian exile. Because essentially what happened is there were some people out in the middle of the desert and God spoke to them, made a promise. They ended up in Egypt. They wandered through the wilderness of Sinai. They showed up and they defeated a bunch of people in what they considered the promised land because God had promised that land to them. And then they just kept pressing on. And they went through all of this period we're going to discuss today, plus the kingdom period. And then the kings began to devolve and get messy and less effective, and then they went into exile. Until the moment they went into exile, things had kind of been on the up and up, basically. And so the idea of writing down all their history seemed unimportant, because essentially they're going to be hanging around forever. Everything's going just fine. When they go into exile, all of a sudden, they have the moment of, A, we might completely disappear. So we have to write down the stuff that is important to us, our story, our history. And two, they wrestled with that big question, how did this happen? How did it happen that they ended up in exile? Either they did something wrong and God let them go into exile, or God is not strong enough to keep them from going into exile. Well, they ultimately landed on A, they did something wrong. And they wrestled with this for about 70 years and they parsed this out and they tried to figure out what they could do or what they may have done better in the past. And when they get out of exile and they return and rebuild the temple, they are very certain they do not want to make the same mistake again. And so they create a massive amount of laws to essentially be boundaries to keep them in their lane. And when Jesus arrives, Jesus's big message to the Jewish people is... Laws are fine and good and, you know, on their own, pretty innocent. But when you think that the law is more important than your relationship with God, you have gotten it backwards. The law does not save you. God saves you. That's essentially Jesus's message altogether. 
And that's why some Jews say that makes sense. And why most Jews say he's crazy. And so those Jews where they say it makes sense begin to try and do something new. And when Gentiles partner with those Jews, essentially it creates a new movement that we call Christianity. So that's the whole of the ark. What we have here, when we talk about the Deuteronomistic history, we're talking about the priests who were taken into exile, who spent 70 years trying to figure out what went wrong and writing their story in hindsight. So what we are going to do today, and even what we're going to do this entire year, is mostly not written in real time, but instead written centuries later about really important events in their specific history. Right. Ready? Clarity on that? Questions? Good. Okay. You're either completely confused or that was clear. So I'm going to go with that was clear. Okay. One quick question. Yes, ma'am. Um, are you talking about just that one book, Deuteronomy? Thank you. Deuteronomy is a book, yes. But Deuteronomy is essentially a book written by the priests. And so all of these books were either written by or finished by priests, pretty much. That's not 100% accurate, but that is good enough for our purposes. And the reason why the priests did this were a couple. A, the priests were really the only literate people. So that's one reason. I mean, general nice person was not literate. So certainly couldn't read, which of course men couldn't write. So the priestly class were really the ones who could read and write. And so they're the only ones that could write these books. But the other reason is when we, when the Israelites go into exile, the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, remember the sequence of this, the ultimate united kingdom of Israel, which we're going to talk about, David's really the one who united the entire kingdom of Israel, split into north and south, Judah and Israel. The Assyrians sacked the northern kingdom first. Then the Babylonians overtook the Assyrians, and the Babylonians came and sacked the southern kingdom. So we really call it the Babylonian exile, even though the Assyrians got that ball rolling. But because the Babylonians overtook the Assyrians, in history, we simply give it the name of Babylonian exile. Does that make sense? That was about the 70 years of exile. Then the Persians, Cyrus the Great, the Persians overtake the Babylonians, and Cyrus comes in and says, why are y'all here? And the Israelites say, oh, well, I mean, we're taken into exile. And he said, well, why don't you just go on back home? Because he didn't want them there. And so they went back home and they rebuilt the temple. Here's what's important to note. When the Assyrians and the Babylonians came and sacked the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel, they did not, did not take all of the Israelites into exile. That's a huge issue for them because they have to feed these people. They have to give them space in their empire. They're not interested in that. They simply want to cut the head off the snake of what was the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. So who do they take? They take the kings, they take the priests, and they take any of the other highly able merchants. So in other words, they take the top 10% of the leadership of the nation. 
and they leave the rest. Because essentially, some nice person who's illiterate and never been in leadership and doesn't understand anything about legal structure isn't going to organize and threaten the Assyrians or the Babylonians once they're gone. So the people who are actually in exile are the elites. They're the ones who can read and write. They're the ones who know the laws. And so when we talk about Deuteronomistic history, it's essentially because the priestly class, those elites, they're the ones who are in exile and they're the ones having all of, asking all of these questions and trying to figure out all the answers. When they come back, which is post-exile, when the exile's over, the Persians have sacked the Babylonians and they're sent back down into Israel to rebuild, there are a lot of people who still consider themselves Jews, but they're not the kind of Jews that the people coming out of exile want to be. They're the, in a sense, they're the old Jews, not the new Jews. And the new Jews are the ones that rebuild the temple, and the new Jews are the ones that become the Pharisees and the Sadducees that challenge Jesus in the Gospels. Now, who are the old Jews? And we've talked about this before. A classic example of old Jews, Samaritans. So we read Gospels, and we read the story of the Good Samaritan, and if we're not careful or knowledgeable of where Samaritans come from, we may miss the idea that Jesus is trying to communicate. When the person is hurt and sent on the side of the road, and the people originally pass him up, those are the new Jews. The new Jews pass. The old Jew sees the person in help that needs help and helps them, not because... They're a nice person, although they are a nice person, but because they understand that that's what God tells them they should do. And not in some vacuum, but because they're an old Jew. And so when Jesus lifts up a Samaritan against the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what he's really doing is saying, you new Jews have gotten this wrong. The old Jews have it right. And that is why they get so mad. Because it'd be one thing if he just picked out random not-Jew and told the story. It's a whole lot worse when he says the old Jews get it and you new Jews are missing the point. It's kind of like when you say to an Episcopalian that a Baptist has it right. You, you would be better to say an atheist has it right. The Episcopalian would be like, yeah, maybe. But when the Baptists get it right, you're like, oh, no, you know. When it's so close to you, and you're sort of pointed out as wrong, that really can like get your goat. And so you've heard me joke before, you know, Episcopalians love to like have multi-faith dinners, but my God, have like an ecumenical dinner with Christians that disagree with you? Absolutely not. So that's sort of like what happens all the way through from the exile, which is probably more answer than you wanted. But any follow-up question on that? All right, let's go. We got to hit Joshua. As I said, at the end of Moses' story, Moses is up on Mount Nebo, which is east of the Jordan River. So remember our geography. The Jordan River runs north and south. You can essentially say it runs from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. On the east side of the Jordan River is today Jordan, the country of Jordan. But that would have been part of the wilderness where the Israelites were roaming. They went way beyond the country, today's country of Jordan. But as they approach the promised land, they're approaching from the east. 
and they are at the River Jordan up in the mountains. If any of you have ever been to the, to the Holy Land, you know that the east side of the Jordan River around the Dead Sea has mountains. The west side, which is the West Bank, and you know, some people say, why is it called the West Bank when it's on the east side of Israel? Well, because it's on the west side of the Jordan River. That's why it's called the West Bank. So today's West Bank in Israel is very flat. It's not perfectly flat. It's not like Florida flat, but it's flatter than the east side, the Jordanian side. And so Moses goes up on Mount Nebo. He looks at the promised land because he can see over the river Jordan into this flatter area. And that's the promised land. And he goes and he dies up on the mountain. And if you remember the way that that story is told, nobody knows where he's buried. Okay. So Moses is essentially gone. Let's look at Joshua. Do not flip from the back because Joshua is book six. So go to Joshua, verse one, chapter one, verse one. And we're just going to read just a few verses to get this rolling. Joshua chapter one, verse one. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, My servant Moses is dead. Now proceed to cross the Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the Israelites. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you, as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea in the west shall be your territory. No one shall be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Jump to verse 10. Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, pass through the camp. And command the people, prepare your provisions, for in three days you are to cross over the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess. We'll pause there. Joshua is now in charge. God has essentially handed the mantle of Moses to Joshua. And Joshua will now cross, physically cross the Jordan River from the east side to the west side and begin the conquest of the promised land. That begins with Jericho. We're going to talk about Jericho in a second. But what I want to note are a couple things. People already live in this land. And we know the name of this land. It's the land of what? It is the land of milk and honey, yes. The land of Canaan. So who lives in the land of Canaan? The Canaanites. Who are the Canaanites? Where did they come from? I love that answer. Very good. Who are the Canaanites? Where they come from? From Canaan. Thank you so much. Okay. So, <laughs> I asked for that, didn't I? Okay. Remembering back to Genesis, Noah had three sons. One of those sons is Ham. And Ham's son, Canaan, is cursed. And how did that happen? Let's go back in time. So, you don't have to turn to this. But Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went out to the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japhet. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was peopled. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. That means he was naked in the tent. 
And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned away, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. So Ham did a thing that embarrassed drunk Moses, I'm sorry, drunk Noah, and Noah got mad and cursed Ham's son Canaan. If you were to read that story, it would be very good of you to ask, why in the world is Noah cursing Ham's son Canaan and not Ham? Well, mostly because this is not historical. This is a story of truth. And so Canaan is somehow wronged God, and this is the way the Jews tell that story. When the Jewish people go into the land of Canaan and begin to rout the Canaanites, they can't simply say the Canaanites are nice people who we killed because we wanted to. Instead, the story dates all the way back to Noah and Canaan's father doing something wrong and Noah's curse, essentially connecting to why it is okay that the Jewish people, the Israelites, go and kill the Canaanites and push them out of the promised land. That is how the promised land is conquered and essentially the theological defense of what is a very violent story. Any questions about that? So then let's do it. Joshua chapter six. Joshua has crossed the promised land and the very first city they come to is Jericho. Joshua chapter six. Now Jericho was shut up inside and out because of the Israelites. No one came out and no one went in. So essentially what has happened is the Israelites have come tearing across the river. And if you are in Jericho, you can see the river. The river is like right there. And so can you imagine being in Jericho, minding your own business and seeing the tens of thousands of people amassing across the river and then coming across the river right at you? So what would the people of Jericho do? They completely shored themselves up and they went inside the city within the walls of the city. And of course, we all know from Vacation Bible School that Jericho had big walls. And so everyone's inside the walls. The Lord said to Joshua, verse 2, See, I have handed Jericho over to you along with its king and soldiers. You shall march around the city, all the warriors circling the city once. Thus you shall do for six days, with seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, the priests blowing the trumpets. When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all of the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat, and all the people shall charge straight ahead. So what happens is they come across the river with the ark, and they parade around the city walls once each day for six days, and then they do it seven times on the seventh day, blow the horns, everyone shouts, the walls come tumbling down, and they rush in and they take Jericho. This is the first 
real win for the Israelite people. This is when they gain some confidence that not only can they do this, but much more importantly, God is putting his hand on them to do this. That's where the older generation made the mistake. They saw the big people with their big walls and they got afraid. What they missed was that if God says to do something, God will make it happen. That is the way the story is told. And so these people are faithful that God will make the walls come a-tumbling down and they will win. So as we keep going on to the conquest of all of this, it's important for us to remember that God is with them every step of the way. Now, if you think back to the very opening verses of the book of Joshua, if you were to draw on a map everywhere that was promised to the people, remember when they said, from the wilderness up to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, to the land of the Hittites and the great sea in the west, that is a massive geographic area. And if you were to look at Israel today, you will know that it's not even close to that big, nor was it in history. Essentially, what happens in the book of Joshua is that they make great strides in conquering this land that God promised, but they don't quite get it all. So there are fits and starts. They win a few things, they lose a few things. The people start to complain against Joshua in the same way they complained against Moses. This cycle happens over and over throughout this book. So just like they kind of get hungry, they feel like they lost a thing, and so they complain to Joshua, Joshua gets upset, God tells Joshua to do a thing, then they go out and they win another battle, and it's kind of back and forth and back and forth. So two steps forward, one step back is essentially the way that this happens. And they don't get all the land that is hinted at at the beginning of Joshua, but they get a lot of it. If you were to essentially end the book of Joshua, it is mostly what is today the country of Israel with a few pieces of land east of the Jordan River, what is in today Jordan. And the way that all of this is divided up is there are about 10 tribes that live essentially in what is today modern Israel and two tribes that live east of the river. It's not quite that clean cut, but that's good enough for our purposes to understand essentially where the book of Joshua ends. One quick note, Joshua has a partner in Eleazar. So I want you to have heard that name. Eleazar is Aaron's son. So essentially what has happened is Moses and Aaron as prophet and high priest, get the people through the wilderness. They both die, and their mantles are handed off to Joshua and Eleazar as essentially prophet and high priest. They are the ones that get the people into the promised land, divide up the land among all the tribes, and then both Joshua and Eleazar die at the end of the book of Joshua. So if we jump all the way to the end of Joshua, don't worry about it. This is what it says. After these things, which is code for conquering the promised land, Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. They buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath-Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. This is interesting. Then the bones of Joseph 
which the Israelites had brought up from Egypt, were buried at Shechem in the portion of the ground that Jacob had bought from the children of Hamor for 100 pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. Eleazar, son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah, the town of his son Phinehas, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. And so Joshua closes by essentially tying up the leadership. You've got Joshua buried over here, Eleazar buried over there, and the body of Joseph that had been held the entire time the people of Israel were in Egypt, had been taken out of Egypt, carried around, apparently, the entire time they were in the wilderness, carried around the entire time they were fighting and conquering in the Promised Land, until ultimately they kind of finished that conquest and then finally buried him, which for all intents and purposes, is at least 500 years that Joseph's bones were kind of held before finally being buried in the Promised Land. That is the summary of Joshua. Then we're going to jump into Judges. Questions about Joshua and how they essentially got into the Promised Land. And a reminder for those of you online, Bub is monitoring the chat, and so you can send questions there. None at all, huh? No questions about mm, God killing a bunch of people? No? We're just all good with that? Check. Okay. What'd you say? You didn't use any big words. I didn't use. No, no big words. Plus, we've all read your synopsis Oh, Pam, not everyone has read that. Okay, so that's a good note, though. We're running over a lot of territory and some actually pretty entertaining stories. On our website, which is stmichael.org slash rbs, there is a synopsis of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. I'm not going to deal with Ruth today. We're not going to deal with Ruth because it's kind of outside of the historic kind of arc where they were writing, but Ruth is so good. And if you haven't read Ruth, Ruth will take you 30 minutes max to read. And it is such a beautiful story. And so maybe one day we'll tackle Ruth in here, but it is a, it's really a lovely thing to read. And so if you haven't done that, go read that. All right. So now we're going to get to part two of what we wanted to cover today, which is judges. The term judges is a bit misleading. Essentially, when we hear the term judge, we think of like black robe with a gavel kind of thing sitting up on the bench. It's not unlike that, but it's a broader definition of what judgment really means. The judges of Israel are essentially the uh, problematic, messy leaders who filled the gap between Moses and Joshua and the kings. So this is really the gap period. Once Joshua dies, there is no clear successor. So Moses dies and the mantle is immediately passed to Joshua. Joshua dies and he's just gone. Now all the tribes have some land. They are all functioning essentially independent from one another. Now they understand that they're all Israelites, but the tribes really do create their own little, think of them as almost like states in the US where related, but also have some independence. And so each of the tribes is functioning with that level of independence. And so the judges are essentially leaders 
that pass some kind of divine judgment onto the enemies of an Israelite tribe. Okay, that was messy, sorry. So these are minor leaders who, on behalf of a particular tribe of Israel, essentially work out God's vengeance and justice against the enemies of that tribe. There are still plenty of enemies around. And each of the judges has a little story about what they did to undermine or defeat the enemy of that particular tribe. So there are plenty of judges around, but we're not going to hit every single one of them. There are a few, essentially six major judges that are highlighted in this book. And I'm going to talk about three of them. But those six judges would be Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson. Now, I hope you've heard at least some of those names before. But I want you to walk away from here knowing, at least with more confidence, the stories of three. Deborah, Gideon, and Samson. And so we're going to look at those three stories to finish up today's study. Let's start with Deborah, which is essentially starts at chapter four of the book of Judges. So flip over to chapter four. Deborah is the only female judge. And Deborah is an interesting kind of judge because she is essentially a prophet. And as a prophet and the only female judge, she operates with a sophistication that the male judges don't necessarily have to hold. She's still female. And as a woman, she doesn't quite have the social authority that men can ex exercise, but she is a really brilliant leader. And so essentially, Deborah comes along at a time when the Israelites were handed over to a Canaanite king named Jabin. And that Canaanite king was oppressing the Israelites for 20 years. This is what the story says. Finally, the people cried out to God for help. Now, I want to pause for a moment to say, in every judge story, the skeleton of the story is the same. You essentially get the people are unfaithful to God. God delivers the people into the hand of the enemy, whoever that is. The people repent and they ask God for help. God sends a leader or a champion in the form of a judge to then deliver them from their enemy. And then the cycle repeats itself. So it's, we don't like God. We get in trouble. We say, we're sorry. And then God delivers us. And then we do the same thing over again. And so that's the judge cycle throughout this entire book over and over again. So Deborah comes along when the Israelites have been oppressed for 20 years by the king of Canaan. Even though the book says Israelites, this is really not everybody. These are more like a tribe or two have, has been oppressed, not the entire group. Deborah came up as a leader of the Israelites and she summoned Barak, who was command of the Israelite army, and told him that God said to her that if he essentially worked for her, went and attacked the Canaanites, God would deliver them. So if we look at chapter 4, verse 8, chapter 4, verse 8, Barak said to Deborah, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And so Deborah said to Barak, I will surely go with you. 
Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will send Sisera, who was part of the Canaanite army, into the hand of a woman. I kind of love that little verse because Deborah is trying to work in her seat, in her station, and so she calls the man in charge of the army and says, um, God has spoken to me, and if you go and do this, God will be with you and you will win. But Barak's a bit chicken, and so he says, well, I'm not going to do this unless you go with me, because you apparently have some sort of like, you know, you're tight with God, and so I need you in order to give me the confidence to go and do this. And so Deborah says, all right, I'll go with you, but I just want to make sure you realize now that I'm going with you, when we win, I get the credit. And so I just kind of love that because Deborah's like, I tried, but if you're going to make me do it, then I'm going to get all the praise. And so Barak took 10,000 soldiers. He slaughtered the Canaanite army. But Sisera, who was in command of their army, fled and hid in the tent of a woman named Jael. Now I'm going to pause and give you one more note. Judges is filled with gory violence. It is not a feel-good kind of book, unless that's your thing, and then we can talk about that later. Um, Joshua is relatively violent, but Judges is far more violent. And the violence that is depicted in Judges is graphic in nature. And I'm going to read one of those stories here right now with J.L. and Sisera. What I want to just simply note is that we will, we will talk about that for a moment at the end of the study. And so be thinking if you've got a particular question about this. No matter what question you ask and what I say to answer your question, none of us will feel good about it. But we're going to try anyway. So look at chapter 4, verse 17. As I noted, Barak has taken the Israelite soldiers, routed the Canaanite army, and their commander Sisera has fled. Sisera comes to the tent of a woman named Jael because Jael is a Kenite. And the Kenites and the Canaanites were essentially, um, they had like a treaty or whatever. It was sort of a safe third party place to go. So look at verse, chapter 4, verse 17. Now Sisera had fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, wife of Heber the Canaanite. For there was peace between King Jabin of Hazor, that's the Canaanites, and the clan of Heber the Kenite. Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, have no fear. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. Then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. He said to her, stand at the entrance of the tent, and if anybody comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. All right, so we're going to pause, because what has happened here? Jael, who's kind of that third-party group, who's likely watched everything that has happened between the Israelites and the Canaanites, has pulled Sisera into her tent, and almost like, you know, a pirate smuggling booty or something in the tent, like covered him up with a rug. So you can kind of imagine, like, Sisera's over in the corner, and she piled some rugs and pillows on top of him. And he said, now go to the tent, to the front of the tent, and tell everyone nobody's here. And so Jael goes to the front of the tent, but, chapter, I mean, verse 21, Jael took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand and went softly back to Sisera and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground. He was lying fast asleep from weariness, and he died. <laughs> 
Then as Barak came in pursuit of Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there was Sisera lying dead with a tent peg in his temple. Jael, along with Deborah in this story, have been super smart. Deborah has taken on this leadership role and delivered her people from the Canaanites. But Jael, who has been watching this from a distance, took her station to essentially dupe Sisera into coming into her tent so she could kill him. And then she went out and found Barak and said, I got him. Come and look. He's in here. And so naturally, Jael, those Kenites, are protected from the Israelites because they ultimately finished off the leader of the Canaanite army. So do you see what Jael has done here? She has saved her people in the same way that Deborah has saved her people. And both come off this story looking quite effective. All right, questions about Deborah? I might actually finish everything. This is great. Let's talk about Gideon. Gideon is more than a Bible you find in a hotel. Gideon is a judge and perhaps the most important of the judges in the theological sense. His story is longer than any other judge's story in this book. Gideon is essentially comes along when the Midianites, so remember Canaanites with Deborah, now we're talking about the Midianites, have punished the Israelites for seven years. The Midianites ravaged the farmland, destroyed the crops, they killed everyone they could find. And this time the Israelites cry out to help and God sends them Gideon. Essentially, God comes to Gideon and says, go lead the people to save your nation. Gideon resists and he says, I am nobody. What am I supposed to do? I'm not strong enough. I don't have leadership qualities. And God says, I'm going to be with you. And so go and do what I am saying. So Gideon gathers an army to fight the Midianites. But God thinks there are too many people in the army Gideon assembles. So look at chapter 7, verse 2. Chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The troops with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Israel would only take credit away from me, saying my own hand has delivered me. So do we get what just happened? Gideon goes off and is kind of successful, builds a big army. But then God says to Gideon, you have too many people. And if you take this army to fight the Midianites and win, the army will think that they are the ones who won, not me. And so God begins to whittle down the fighting force that Gideon has developed. Now, therefore, proclaim this in the hearing of the troops. This is verse three. Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. Thus Gideon sifted them out. 22,000 troops returned and 10,000 remained. So he's whittled this down from 32,000 to 10,000. Verse four, then the Lord said to Gideon, the troops are still too many. This is hilarious. Take them down to the water and I will sift them out for you there. When I say this one shall go with you and he shall go with you. And when I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go with you. So Gideon brought the troops down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, all those who lap the water with their tongue as a dog laps, you shall put to one side. All those who kneel down to drink, putting their hands to their mouths, you shall put to the other side. The number of those that lapped was 300. 
But all the rest of the troops knelt down to drink the water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred that lapped, I will deliver you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all the others go home. So essentially what has happened is 32,000 troops that Gideon amassed has been whittled down to 300 apparently Neanderthals. And so <laughs> these 300 men now go with Gideon to fight this battle. And it's very clear when Gideon wins that it's not because those 300 men were so much better than the thousands of Midianite troops. It is very clear, and as the story goes on to say, God's hand was on the Israelites to deliver them. So then the story loops one more time. One quick note, Gideon was so successful and such a kind of good guy that the Israelites want Gideon to be their king. Gideon refuses and said, I am not your king, God is your king. And if the story had ended there, Gideon comes off looking so great. But then Gideon pivots and he wants treasure and to all power and whatever, and then that leads him astray. And like with everyone else, this judge, Gideon, although maybe better than other judges, isn't that great in the end either, because he's still human and messy and we all have faults. All right. La Any questions about Gideon? Then we get to the fun one, Samson. Samson is probably a story you know, so I'm not going to go into this too much, um, but I do want to make just a few notes. So Samson is one of the only people in the Bible to have a miraculous birth. It's very interesting. His mother was unable to get pregnant, and so an angel of the Lord appears to Samson's mother and tells her that she will conceive a son, and the angel instructed her to raise the son as a Nazarite. A Nazarite is essentially a child who has been given over to God for a very special holy purpose. There are other Nazarites in scripture. Samson is just one that essentially, because she gets pregnant and because the story, as the story goes, the pregnancy is a divine intervention from God, she gives Samson over to basically be raised in the church. And part of that commitment means you do not cut his hair. That was just a thing that Nazarites did. Samson's strength, I mean, he's clearly the strongest person in the Bible. His strength is rooted in his commitment as a Nazarite to never cut his hair. But just like Achilles has a heel, Samson's hair becomes his downfall. Samson is not only hair that becomes a downfall, he's impulsive, he's violent, he is lustful, and he goes about as if he owns the world. He sees a Philistine woman that he wants, and so he tells his father to go get him that woman, and so he sets it up, and on the way for Samson to go and meet the Philistine woman in order to start the marriage process, he gets attacked by a lion. I mean, to my knowledge, lions do not live in Israel, but there we are. So he gets attacked by a lion. The strength of God comes on Samson and he tears the lion in half, splitting its jaw, just like someone could do to a young goat. I don't know why you would do that to a young goat, but that's what the story says. And so essentially Samson leaves the carcass of the lion there, goes on to meet this Philistine woman. They make arrangements and he goes on home. 
Well, he comes back a second time to actually marry the woman and sees the carcass of the lion sitting there, and bees have created a hive in the carcass of the lion. So, as anyone would, you go over to the dead lion's body and scoop up some honey out of the beehive, right? Of course. And so, Samson eats the honey out of the dead lion's carcass and then goes on to the wedding. Great. And so, because this thing happens, Samson creates a riddle. And I'm out of time. Samson creates a riddle, and here's the riddle. Out of the eater comes something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. He challenges the men at the wedding to figure out the answer to that riddle. And if they don't, they owe him a lot of money, uh, goods. And if they figure it out, he owes them a lot of goods. So essentially they get married, multiple days go by, these men cannot solve the riddle. And so they go to his new wife, because Philistines are not Israelites, and convince her to dupe Samson into telling her the answer to the riddle so they won't have to lose all this money to Samson. She does so, tells them, they get the riddle right, Samson gets totally angry because he knows exactly who sold him out, his new wife, and so he kills all the men because they have cheated, and essentially now hates this woman who is his new wife. Well, so her father gives her to his best man at the wedding, who apparently didn't die, and this is all happens without Samson's knowledge. Samson comes back days later to be with his wife, only to find out that his best man is now with his wife, and he gets so mad that he goes out and catches 30, 300 foxes, ties their tails together, puts torches on the ends of their tails, and sets them free into the fields so they burn up all of the crops of the Philistines. Okay, this is good stuff, right? Okay, hold on. Give me like two more minutes. And so the Philistines get so mad that they go to the Israelites and want Samson's life and Samson's hiding. And so the Israelites come to Samson and say, listen, we cannot fight these people. You've got to give yourself up. And so Samson gives himself over to the Philistines. But when Samson gives himself over to the Philistines, he miraculously loosens his bindings and is able to kill 3,000 of the Philistines because, I don't know, um, because he just likes to kill people. And so, essentially, this all boils down to Samson ultimately meets Delilah. Delilah also dupes him into discovering that his hair is his power. And so she sells him out to the Philistines they shave his head, he loses his strength, they bind him up, put him in jail. The Philistines put on this huge celebratory party, and Samson is brought out to entertain them and tied between the two big posts, holding up this massive building with thousands of Philistines inside, partying hardy and making fun of Samson. In that moment, Samson repents, and Samson says a prayer to God, where he essentially says, I'm sorry for what I have done and for not keeping faithful to you and the promise you made. And if you will make me strong one last time and let me die with these Philistines, I will kill them to your glory. And so the spirit of the Lord comes back onto Samson, even without his hair, and he's able to push the pillars down, the house collapse, and kills more people in that moment than Samson had killed in his entire life, and God is glorified. <laughs> All right. So there you go.
That gets us all the way through the book of Judges. Think about questions that you may have. In particular, you can ask any of those theological questions. And if you're watching this after the live show, then you can ask the questions there. We'll monitor that. And we'll come back next week. And we will begin Samuel. See you all next week. Bye.